So let me pray. Father, thank you that you are with us now by your spirit and that you speak through your word. We pray that you would do that now and help us to see Jesus, to hear what you're saying, to see what it means in our lives and be ready to go and live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on the uh, 18th of April 1906, a massive earthquake struck the city of San Francisco and at least 3,000 people died. 250,000 people lost their homes. The writer Jack London visited the city hours after the earthquake struck and he wrote this, not in history has a modern city been so completely destroyed. San Francisco is gone. Nothing remains of it but memories and a few homes that were near the edge of the city. Its industrial area is gone. Its business area is gone. Its social and living areas are gone. The factories, great stores and newspaper buildings, the hotels and the huge homes of the very rich are all gone. Within minutes of the earthquake, the fires began. Within an hour, a huge tower of smoke caused by the fires could be seen 100 miles away. And for three days and nights, this huge fire moved in the sky, reddening the sun, darkening the day, and filling the land with smoke. And so on he goes. You, you don't forget living through an earthquake, do you? It takes years to recover. And the city of Philadelphia in central Turkey was an area that regularly suffered earthquakes. And a few decades before this letter that we've just heard, these, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, a few decades before this, an earthquake flattened the city of Philadelphia. And it had to be rebuilt at great expense with funds from Emperor Tiberius. Now, what would it feel like to be a small group of Christians, just a few dozen in a city with shaky foundations, literally, where nothing was certain except that you are definitely in the minority? You're small and insignificant. You're not even the, the major religious group in town. There's a much larger and established Jewish community who are in favor with the Romans. And there's you on the margins of society, feeling unnoticed, uninfluential, and forgotten. For many of us today, these last few months, I guess, have felt a bit like an earthquake, shaking our foundations, you know, making us question what we hold dearly. And we're now in kind of recovery mode-ish. Uh, and there's been, you know, there's been frustration for, for Christians and churches. We've waited for clarity from the government and they've, you know, seemed to ignore requests to do things in certain ways, to be allowed to do things safely. It's easy to feel on the margins of things. But the book of Revelation is written to tell Christians how things really are. Remember, Revelation means... Uh, peeling back, an ap apocalypse, that's what the word apocalypse literally means, an uncovering, so that we can see how things really are, so that we can see into heaven. 
We can see what God sees. We can see what actually matters and what is actually significant. And the message throughout Revelation is God's in charge. He's on his throne, even when you're suffering. Even though you can't see him, he is there. So don't be fooled. Don't be fooled into thinking that this life is all there is, that the opinion of your peers or your work colleagues or your family is all that matters, that as long as you have some cash in the bank, you will be happy. That isn't true. That is the message of Revelation. And we've seen it in each of these letters at the beginning of the book, the letter to Ephesus. You know, you guys, you're great at fighting battles, but you've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten about Jesus. To Smyrna, you're suffering greatly, but I am the first and the last who died and came to life again, so don't be afraid. To Pergamum, you're compromising with false teachers. You're forgetting that what you teach about God matters. To Thyatira, you are tolerating sexual immorality. You're thinking people can live how they like. They can't. I am on my throne. To Sardis, you are seeking the approval of people, but not of God. And now to Philadelphia, where they invented cheese. No, that's not quite true. But once again, the issue is, do you realize that the only thing that matters for a church is whether or not Jesus is at the center of everything you are doing. If you've got Jesus, you've got everything. If you've not got Jesus, you've got nothing at all. It's as simple as that. He is the key to the Christian life. He's the key to the life of the church. He gets us in, he keeps us in, he secures us in the end. And we see that in three ways here. We see, first of all, Jesus lets us in at the beginning. He lets us in at the beginning. We'll see, we'll see what the situation was in Philadelphia as we go through the verses now. But the basic thing seems to be this. The non-Christian Jews in Philadelphia were putting huge pressure on the Christians. And they were saying to them, look, you're, you are not real. You're not genuine members of God's people. We're the genuine members. You're not. And remember, at that point, Christianity would, be, would have been seen as a sect of Judaism. And it was... Uh, you know, the, these are the Jewish people who believe that Jesus is the Christ and they're a kind of minority sect within the wider movement. And, and Judaism itself was a, a legal Roman religion. You, you were allowed to be Jewish, but Christianity definitely wasn't at that point. So the, the Jewish people had great power over the Christians because they could go to the Roman governors and they could say, you know, actually, look, these Christians are causing trouble. And the Romans would come and cause trouble for the Christians. And Jesus then is saying to the, to the Christians, don't be fooled. Verse 9. They claim to be Jews, but they're not really Jewish, he's saying. Now, it's quite a shocking thing for our, to, to our ears to hear these days. And we need to be careful how we hear this. But his, his point, he, the point he's making is that a Jew who follows through on what their scriptures say to them, should come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And these people haven't. And so in that sense, they're not being true to their own scriptures and indeed to their own identity. So that's why he uses this extraordinary phrase. 
they're, they're a synagogue of Satan. Um, and I think, you know, in a culture where now, you know, quite rightly today, we are very alert to issues around anti-Semitism. I think words like this sounds utterly extraordinary. Can the Bible really say this? Um, but, but we need to understand what this description is actually referring to. Who is Satan? Well, Satan is the great accuser of God's people who tries to tell God's people that they are guilty, that they're not good enough. Think of Satan in the book of Job we saw a few weeks ago in the evening service. Or think of um, that, that line in, the, in Before the Throne of God Above, the great hymn, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, um, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. The, 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 Satan's role is to tell Christians, you're not good enough. You're not really a member of God's people. And so what he's saying is that these Jewish people are fulfilling that kind of role. They're saying to the Christians, you don't really belong in God's people. We're the true people of God and you're not. And John is, is using quite shocking language to make the point, now actually, look, you, although you feel insignificant and you're small and you feel sidelined, you are the genuine article and they're not. Don't be taken in by them. So, of course, should go without saying, shouldn't it? This is not a comment on all Jewish people everywhere or a, a label that can be attached to Jewish people everywhere. And it, it, it certainly isn't any kind of justification for any sort of violence or discrimination towards uh, Jewish people as a race. But th this is John's description of this particular community of people of Jewish people in that particular city at that particular point where they're the majority, the Christians are the minority. And, and that in itself makes it a different dynamic from how things have often been through the rest of history, if you think about it, where often it's been Christians who have the upper hand, Christians who are in the majority, and, and sometimes, tragically, that has um, led to things going the other way and, and Jewish people suffering at, um, the other way around. Um, but this is Jesus simply saying, if people tell you Christians that you are not good enough for God, they're wrong because I am the key that lets you in, not them. I am the key that lets you in. So can you see that in verse seven? Um, uh, he says, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one and open now that that key of David was there in that reading from Isaiah chapter 22 that Ruth read for us a promise that one day God's servant will be the guardian of God's people who lets them in and out so he's saying it may feel like those Jewish people are shutting the door on you but actually Jesus is the key Jesus is the doorman he's the bouncer who lets people in and out of God's kingdom uh, not them. And so verse 9, it is believers in Jesus who are truly fulfilling what it means to be Jewish because believers in Jesus have the promised key of King David in the Messiah. If you've got Jesus, you've got all you need. And that is what everybody today needs to hear, whether Jew or Gentile. But actually there's a deeper message here as well because today in the church we can end up 
acting like these particular Jewish people did towards the real Christians, making out that something other than trusting in Jesus is what makes you a real Christian. And so we, we need to ask ourselves whether it's obvious what we say and what we do that Jesus is on the door, as it were, that Jesus lets people in, that he is the key. Not, you know, it's not what kind of person you are. It's not what race you are. It's not where you live. It's not what job you have or don't have. It's not how many qualifications you have. To fit in, you just need to believe in Jesus. That's how it should be. Is it true? Well, let's make sure it is. You see, if we, if we only you know, mix with people who are like us, who are easy to, to talk to, then we imply that that is the key to belonging. It's not Jesus. It's being someone who's easy to talk to with plenty of jokes and anecdotes or whatever that, that makes you belong. But this isn't a, a club for hanging out together with people like us. It's God's people and the mark of belonging here is trusting in Jesus, nothing more, nothing less. He's the one who lets us in. That's the first thing we need to see in these verses. So Jesus lets us in. Jesus then, secondly, keeps us going in the middle. He lets us in at the beginning. He then he keeps us going in the middle. He, verse 10, have a look at that. So he says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. There is an hour of trial coming, he says. Now, this may have been the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, which sent massive shockwaves across the whole Roman world, or, or it may have been something else. But the, whole, the, the point is what Jesus said. There are big trials to come but you will not be alone i will keep you from them in other words they will not crush you but look at what he doesn't say as he says that he doesn't say i the the reason that you won't be crushed is because i will rapture you i will take you away from this earth to somewhere else he doesn't say that does he? he doesn't say the hour of trial will come but you will never feel its effects but he says he will keep them from it it's coming on the whole earth, which presumably includes them, but he will keep them. And that fits with what the rest of the Bible promises Christians. Not, not an easy life, not, not a life filled free of trials and temptations, but a promise that he will walk with us as we trust him and keep us going to the end. So again, if you've got Jesus, you've got everything. If you've not got Jesus, you've got nothing. And again, this is about opening our eyes to what is really going on behind the scenes when we're suffering and struggling. That's when we need God's perspective the most, isn't it? John 17, verse 15, Jesus prays for his disciples and he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The suffering in this life is not somehow going to be switched off when we become a Christian, but he will walk through it with us. So Jesus lets us in at the beginning, he keeps us going in the middle, and he gives us eternal life in the end. Have a look at that in verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. 
and I will also write on them my new name. These are basically lots of different ways of saying it will be okay in the end. In the end, you will be totally secure. You will be a pillar in the temple. Again, what, think what it meant to be for insignificant marginalized Christians in this newly rebuilt city with all its temples, with great stone pillars. No, you will be a pillar in the temple that really matters. Pillars are not easily removed, are they? I will write new names on you, he goes on, the name of my God, the name of my city that is coming out of heaven, a new identity. Remember that the city coming out of heaven to earth is how the book of Revelation ends, how the whole Bible story ends. Now, I mentioned Philadelphia cheese earlier. It's kind of ironic, actually. I don't know whether you will remember this if you were in the UK maybe about 10, 15 years ago. But there was a whole series of adverts for Philadelphia cheese, which involved uh, people sitting around in cl um, on clouds, all dressed in white, eating Philadelphia cheese. And that was kind of eternity, with Philadelphia cheese sitting on a cloud um, with, you know, with crackers and soft cheese. And that was you know, meant to be how things are gonna be forever. And, you know, we, we, that, that's kind of fitting the popular picture of what people imagine when they think of heaven, isn't it? Of, you know, this sort of cloudy, spirity, uh, funny existence with sort of lift music playing quietly in the background on the harp. Um, and it's kind of okay, but actually, is that really how we want to spend eternity? We'll probably get a little bit sick of Philadelphia cheese eventually. Um, but actually, that, that, that isn't the Bible's picture of eternity. It's a kind of medieval art version. The end of the Bible story is uh, much more than that. There is life after life after death, as uh, one person put it. There is a final resurrection. There is the return of the Lord Jesus, the transformation of this earth into the new heavens and the new earth as heaven literally comes to earth and that means that Jesus isn't promising floating around on clouds dressed in white angel wings Philadelphia cheese it's much better than that it is this world transformed made remade with real physical bodies and buildings and, and who else you know who knows what else exactly but the key thing is without all the rubbish stuff that makes us cry that is what Jesus promises and he says, just hold on. Verse 11, hold on to what you have and I will come and transform this place of suffering and turn it into a place of joy. So once more, if you've got Jesus, you see, you've got everything, you've got everything you need. If you've not got Jesus, you've got nothing. So stick with him. Wherever we stand with God today, we need to hear this. If you've been a Christian for years, it's, it's too easy to drift away from seeing things from God's perspective and start seeing them from our own perspective again. So as we struggle with the after tremors of this pandemic earthquake, and we wonder if there will be a second quake, a second wave, and how life can be rebuilt, what is the one thing that we think we really need? The one thing we think we can't do without? Maybe, maybe we just need to refocus and remember 
Jesus is the doorman, not us. He lets us in. He keeps us going. He secures us in the end. So don't look anywhere else. Hold on to him. And if you're new to Christian things or you're investigating them at the moment or you have not yet put your trust in Jesus, all this makes it really clear that it's him that this is all about. It's him that you need to investigate. It's him that you need to know. He is the key to life. Those are, those are huge claims to make, aren't they? But uh, that is where you need to look at him in the Gospels, in, uh, in the Bible, and the significance that he makes to our lives today. So let's be a church where it's really obvious to anyone who's watching that Jesus is at the center. He's what you need to belong here. He is all you need to belong here. Let me pray now. Father, thank you for these uh, promises and reassurances that we see here. Thank you that if we have Jesus, we have everything we need. And if we don't have Jesus, we don't have anything at all. Help us, therefore, to keep him at the centre of our own lives and of the life of our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.